Well, let's pray one more time as we prepare our hearts to uh, be ministered to by God's word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given it to us to know you, to understand you. Father, I pray as we enter into the book of Mark this morning, as we understand uh, more who Christ is and how that relates to us, that you would hold us well in tension, our role in the mystery of salvation, how we are to prepare our hearts to receive you in the face of your sovereignty, in the face of Christ's role as the one who commands the Spirit to make alive what is dead. Father, let us take seriously the warning that we have from your word and give us the grace to repent where we need to in the face of our need for you. Prepare us now, Father. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I just prayed, how you respond matters. The way that you respond to to someone shows what you believe about that person that you're confronted with. And it reveals what you are believing about yourself. Take, for example, this old story about a ship's captain. The captain on the bridge of a large naval vessel saw a light ahead on a collision course, and he signaled, alter your course 10 degrees to the south. Well, the reply came back shortly, alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain then signaled, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a captain. The reply came, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a seaman, third class. The furious captain signaled, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. And the reply came, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. (laughs) See, the way that you respond indicates what you believe about yourself and about that person or thing that you're responding to. And in Mark, the historical Jesus is being revealed. That's Mark's intent. That's why he writes the book. He wants you to see that Jesus is the true Christ, the king of his people, the long prophesied one that would bring the spiritual kingdom of heaven, that would set the world aright. Now, if you remember about a month ago, I preached from Mark And we're taking the book of Mark in big chunks. I'm going to try to do it in 12 sermons. And there's an intention behind that. And that's so that we can see the flow of Mark's argument that Jesus is the Christ for what it is. So if you zoom out, Mark essentially has three basic movements to his book. And they can be summed up as the revealing of the king, the campaign of the king, and the coronation of the king. And today we're still in that first part, which is the unveiling of the king. And I preached last month the first chapter to you, and that chapter showed that Jesus is the authenticated and the true Christ, the one whom the people of God had been waiting for, the one who was coming with a gospel of salvation. And in chapter 2, In the beginning of three, Mark shows us that Jesus is the Christ. That's a sermon that you did not hear, so don't think that you missed that. But Mark reveals that Jesus is the Christ. He's that historic king. 
and the people of God because his work is to forgive sins. Mark turns the gospel into a work of the forgiveness of sins. And today we'll be in chapter 3 beginning in verse 7 and we're going to extend through all of chapter 4. I won't read it all, but I'd encourage you to do so if you haven't already as you think about what Mark has in store here. But Mark's argument today shows that Jesus is the king who commands the spirit of God to rescue the broken. But that rescue, he reveals, is only for those who know that they're broken. Because Jesus teaches that the way that you respond to him is important. And he tells us that there are generally four ways in which people respond to the authority of Jesus as king. The whole section, 3-7 through the end of chapter 4, could be summed up in the parable of the sower beginning in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. If you have a Bible, turn there now, Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and read with me silently as I read aloud. <coughs> Excuse me. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. See, the way you respond to Jesus is of the utmost importance. And your response shows what you believe about yourself and Jesus' kingship. 
So my purpose in preaching this text today is that you would see your need for brokenness before Jesus for the gospel to truly take root. But the problem is that we're often far from feeling broken. Do you agree with that? We believe that we're strong most of the time, capable and wise. We're discerning and we're able to handle ourselves well, knowing the best way to handle people and our time and our resources. In our strength, we tend to be opportunistic. We look for the best opportunities and we take them. We use others and we use things to get where we want to be. We position ourselves and we point ourselves in pursuit of the best outcome for ourselves. How about you? Does one of those describe your best on a given day? Or are you identified by your brokenness and your need for the gospel most of the time? Mark shows us that there are four ways that we tend to respond to Jesus' authority, and he provides us examples of each through Jesus' teaching. If you have an outline, turn over to the backside and you can follow along as we work through this passage. The first thing that Jesus teaches us that Mark reveals is that Jesus is a destroyer to the decided. Jesus is a destroyer to the decided. Near the close of the Civil War on November 14th, or November 15th rather, 1864, General William T. Sherman led nearly 60,000 soldiers on a 285-mile tour of destruction from Atlanta to Savannah, Georgia. Sherman's march, as it's popularly known, was intended to frighten Confederate sympathizers out of their loyalty to the failing southern state. The troops stole food and livestock, and they burned the houses of those who resisted along their path. Sherman's conquest, in his own words, was intended to make old and young, rich and poor, feel the hard hand of war. He wanted all of those who were still decidedly loyal to the rebel states to feel the destruction of war and cause them to rethink their loyalty and shake up their world. And his conquest worked largely. Various accounts tell people feeling hopeless as a result. They knew that they were outmatched and that their resistance was futile. So why did some resist? Well, because they were losing everything that they had worked for. Their very livelihood was on the line. Their pride was at stake. We often have a similar response We have a similar response in Mark's gospel from the religious leaders as they're confronted by Jesus and his gospel. You know, it's interesting. Everyone loves Jesus in the gospels for the most part, at least in the beginning. Everyone loves Jesus. In these chapters, the crowds are so large that they're pressing in around him, so much so that he can't even breathe in some places. Jesus is a miracle worker. He brings them the things that they want, physical needs. We'll talk more on that later. But there's one group that just doesn't like Jesus. In fact, they hate him. In chapter 3, verse 6, we see the first mention of a plot to kill Jesus. Very early in Mark, they're already plotting to take him down. Why do they hate him? What do they have against Jesus? 
He's done good so far as they can see. Well, because like Sherman, he sweeps through destroying their livelihood. And because they've decided who they want to be before God, namely those who are right with God because of their obedience, Jesus' gospel message is a threat to their pride and their livelihood. See, they've staked their lives on their own religious authority. They have importance and value based on their own status. <coughs> Excuse me. They see themselves as good before God. They have this religion thing figured out. And then Jesus enters the scene and he throws everything into chaos. Suddenly they're not seen to be as decidedly religious as they used to be. And their world is threatened. Jesus describes these people in his parable as the hard soil that the seed falls on. The birds come and they snatch it away and the seed quickly is taken. And it cannot take root because the seed cannot break through the surface of their religious veneer. Because that surface is pretty packed down. There's no room for anything to take root. But that's not limited to the parable, and it's not limited to that time. See, the truth is that that can be indicative of our own hearts today just as easily. Excuse me. Take a drink. The world hears that the gospel is through Jesus Christ and his work alone. And the world wants to take that message that it's through Jesus Christ alone. And they want to accuse that message of being narrow, of being closed minded, which, by the way, is a very narrow view. If you think about it, uh, that's one that, that relies on the hearer's intellect to decide what's right and wrong against the proof of God's word and against history. But in that scheme, Jesus becomes a destroyer, a, a threat in that he is a threat to my own understanding of the world. And all that I have accomplished, I think that all the things I would have to believe if I accepted that gospel might change. All the ways that I would have to change if I believed that. That's a hard path that the gospel can't take root in. The seed of the gospel can fall on the hard path soil of believing that I'm pretty much okay sometimes too. If you've ever said, hey, I'm pretty much good with God. I don't need Jesus. Well, Jesus destroys your conception of your inherent goodness and what that rests on. Before God, Jesus says that you're broken, that you're at odds with God. And that's threatening if you've built your reputation on thinking that you're pretty much okay with God. Even as those in the church, we can insulate ourselves against the gospel with a decision that we made once upon a time, all the while being very hardened against Jesus, thinking that Jesus and his gospel did their thing back there, but now I'm in control. But it's no longer about what Jesus has done. <clears throat> the truth is that Jesus comes to shake your world up. Jesus is a bull in the china shop. The religious leaders were right to be threatened by Jesus. He really does come as a general Sherman here. He destroys the opposition in faith, to faith in him. Do you view Jesus 
as a destroyer of your natural world, as one who shakes up your religious efforts? Has your life been changed as a result of believing in the gospel of Jesus? If not, maybe you're not following Jesus. Are there pockets of unbelief in your heart? Because Jesus is a destroyer of the decided. But number two, Jesus is a problem to the people pleaser. Jesus is a problem to the people pleaser. Okay, did any of you have embarrassing parents? Anyone here? Are you an embarrassing parent? Raise your hand. I'm not. I'm glad my kids will never be embarrassed by me. Do you ever have parents, though, that would do things uh, that seemed like they were only to embarrass you? My mom, bless her heart, preface it that way, buckle up. My mom is a great lady. She's kind. She's loving. She, she loves to give good gifts. That's her love language, and I love to get great gifts, so that's a good thing for me. But one thing my mom does not have is a filter on her mouth. And the first time I took Hannah to meet my parents, she told Hannah all sorts of things that I can't repeat here about me. Embarrassing things. And most of the things that she told her were not even true. I think they were just to embarrass me. But that embarrassment is not so much a reflection of the person doing the embarrassing. Uh, Though, dads, you probably shouldn't wear tube socks with your sandals and your shorts. But it's not as much a reflection of the embarrasser as it's a reflection of the one being embarrassed. Do you see that? Typically, the one doing the embarrassing has no idea what they're doing. But the one who is embarrassed is the one who is trying to construct an image of who they are before other people. They're trying to build their identity like I was with Hannah. My mom totally wrecked the thing that I had going. It worked out in the end. But one way of responding to Jesus is by being embarrassed by his gospel. Maybe not all of it. In fact, there are probably parts of it that you really like. But do we really need all of it? Maybe not all of it. In fact, uh, for example, the gospel is, is the bold declaration that people are inherently wicked. Do we need that part of it? That's a little embarrassing. That's Just an implication of the gospel, though, that people can do no good on their own. Thus, we need the gospel of Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin nature. So why do 70 percent of Christians doubt that fact? Why do they believe that people are inherently good? They believe it because the world believes it. The world thinks that people are good by nature. And it's embarrassing to believe what Jesus says about people when the world is going against that grain, that we're born wicked sinners, unable to discern what is right for ourselves. That pulls the rug out from the born-this-way doctrine of the world. The gospel makes it hard to accept the natural man's impulses. That his desires are naturally right. The gospel won't allow you to lean into those things because it's the declaration that on your own, you are born inherently wicked. Maybe you were born this way, but you were born as a sinner in need of a savior. See, Christianity is a social credit killer. 
that condemns the things that the world says is good. That's what Jesus' family finds out, if you remember from these chapters. This is the only place where we see Jesus' family pop up, and it's to take him home, says the text, because they think he's out of his mind. The truth is he's embarrassing the family. Jesus' message is offensive to the culture. And they want to get rid of him quietly. They don't want to be embarrassed by his message anymore. And that embarrassment that you might feel, Jesus says, is the seed of the gospel falling on rocky soil. We see that in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. He says, other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. See, a life that receives the gospel as some good news, but that has no root when persecution comes, when embarrassment comes, when it's socially difficult, when I have to make a choice between standing up for Christ and going with the world, that faith withers and dies. And that's not real gospel faith. Do you remember the character of Pliable from Pilgrim's Progress? Christian tells him of the joy of the celestial city, that place that he's, that he's headed on his journey. And Pliable, this character, he likes the sound of that. He likes the sound of what's to come. So he goes with Christian until they fall into what's called the slough of despond. And he questions, why did I ever join this man in the first place? I didn't know it was going to be difficult. He didn't know there'd be challenges or persecution. That's us when we try to fit the gospel into the world. It just doesn't fit into the world's social system. But the reality is that we're all naturally people pleasers. Some of us more so than others, some less. But the fact that all of you came in today wearing clothes shows that all of you at some level are people pleasers. Thank you for doing that, by the way. No one is really free from living to some standard. That's my point. I hope you see that. People are always subject to some kind of pressure. You can see the social norms of our day that cause us to think the way that we're supposed to think. But you can see those things shifting over time, can't you? It wasn't 16 years ago that if you wanted to be elected president, well, you'd better stand against homosexual marriage. Well, today, you'd better not stand against that if you want to be elected president. Our world standard is changing at an alarming rate, and there's a lot of pressure to say the right things so that we might be approved by the culture. We're all people pleasers by nature. We all want to shift for those things. That's our natural sinful nature. Children very early seek to win the approval of their parents. They try to find things that will please their parents within months of being born, some studies indicate. We're born with that kind of pressure to please others. It's what we put our trust in a lot of the time. And the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to offer another way, but it's costly. It will not please others as the worldly system does. Jesus tells us that we must count the cost if we're going to follow him. Because Jesus is a problem to the people pleaser. But number three, Jesus is a golden goose to the greedy. Jesus is a golden goose to the greedy. 
I used to get extra credit for alliteration. Still hang in there. Is that people pleasing? Jesus is a golden goose to the greedy. There once was a boy named Jack who was looking for a chance. He was very poor. And one day he came across a woman who was willing to trade him some magic beans for his only cow. Jack took the chance and he planted the beans. And a huge vine grew up, much to his surprise, to the heavens. And when he climbed it, he found that a giant lived there who had all sorts of treasures, including a goose that laid golden eggs. This golden goose was his chance for freedom. It would guarantee a future for Jack if he could just get rid of that pesky giant. So Jack slew the giant and stole the golden goose and lived happily ever after. So the story goes. The gospel that Jesus brings can often get mutated into our desire for physical and material comfort. Question, whatever happened to those crowds that followed Jesus? They're everywhere in these accounts. They're pressing in around Jesus so that he might be crushed, he says at one point. He has to get a boat so that he can go into the boat just to teach so that they won't press in so tightly around him. And then they just seem to fall off the map. Where are these people? Well, the truth is they just followed Jesus for a little while. If you read the Gospels carefully, you see what happened. It seems that they just wanted entertainment. They just wanted a little food, a little good teaching. And then they moved on. Jesus was the golden goose. He had the next big thing. And a lot of times we treat the Gospel like the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. In our version, we're Jack, of course, and we have a hard life and we wish for something more. If I could just ascend to heaven to get what God has, then I'd be happy. And Jesus becomes our ticket to the good life. He's the golden goose. I just climb the vine of faith and then I get the goods. Just got to avoid that pesky giant in heaven. But we think that the gospel is broken if it doesn't get us the things that we want. See, we want Jesus to fix our marriage or to give us a marriage or to give us children or to make us prosperous in this world. Maybe we're not so self-focused. Maybe we want something else. Maybe we think the gospel is broken if it doesn't bring world peace or if it doesn't bring social reform like I think it should. Maybe you're eternally focused. I just need the gospel to get me to heaven or to reunite me with my loved ones. In any of those conceptions, that's a misunderstanding of the gospel. It's just as profound as the way that the crowds misunderstood it. And it makes Jesus a golden goose. Maybe that's what's keeping you back from trusting Jesus in the first place. You see all this suffering in the world and you think, how can Jesus really be victorious like he says he is? But what we don't understand is this is but a shadow of a spiritual reality. And the sufferings of this world, the wars, the pain, the volatility, all of those things are meant to help you see more fully what it means to enjoy Christ forever. They're things that are meant to point you toward Christ and the spiritual victory that He has secured that will one day be on earth as it is in heaven. But that is not this day. Jesus says in Verse 18, and other seeds are the ones sown among thorns. They're those who hear the word, 
But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. See, that statement indicates that the gospel is not designed to give you worldly power and riches. And it's not designed for other worldly things. Nor is it designed just for the sake of heaven in and of itself. The gospel is meant to produce a spiritual kingdom where worshipers will forever enjoy God. If you want to witness the miracle of the gospel, look around you. Here are men and women who are a testimony to the work of Jesus. Lives transformed by the gospel. People who are born in a physical world, knowing from birth that they must cry out just to have their physical needs met. People who have striven to get whatever they can in this world, who are now broken before Christ. Now transformed by the work of Christ and are now seated here in this building to worship the king of the spiritual kingdom. Something more. Are you desiring that kind of transformation? Or are you still looking for things? Jesus is a golden goose to the greedy. You know, if you notice, there's a scary portion here about blaspheming the spirit. You see that in verse three, beginning in, I'm sorry, chapter three, beginning in verse 22. It comes right before the parable of the sower. And it's between the way that these various people are responding to Jesus Jesus says that the one who blasphemes the spirit never has forgiveness and is guilty of eternal sin. What's happening there? Well, it seems to stand apart from the rest of the passage, doesn't it? Maybe you're wondering why I'm bringing it up now. What's it doing there? Well, I think it's situated in exactly the right spot. Because Mark wants you to understand That if you are decided in your religion without Jesus, if you are embarrassed by Jesus, if you love Jesus for what he can get you and not the spiritual realities that Jesus brings in restoration, the spiritual work of making dead men alive by his gospel, then you're guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You, You cannot live right with God Unless you trust in the work of Jesus, unless you trust in the spiritual work of Jesus. And that means you must come to Jesus as broken before him. You know, in chapter four, verse 35, we see this story about Jesus calming the storm. And that story often gets presented as Jesus being able to calm the affairs of your life. To make the chaos of your existence a little bit more bearable. But as you can see, that's not contextually accurate. Jesus' calming of the storm fits right into this narrative structure as the true reality of how Jesus saves his people. He takes people who are not worldly mighty, who are not able to do religion well, nor people who are able to to thread the needle of worldly impress, nor people who are interested in the right things, but he takes people who are broken, whose life is a wreck, whose people, whose life is, is a fierce storm that they cannot overcome. They're utterly in chaos and spiritually before God and Jesus. And Jesus commands the spirit to calm the treachery of their soul and to make them new. 
Jesus takes sinners, people who are broken and rebellious before God, and he restores them by faith. That's the work of Jesus. That's what Jesus came to do. He offers spiritual life to all who would believe by living in perfect obedience, the thing that you cannot do as a broken person. And then he dies the death that you owe in your place. The gospel is not good news that you can try hard enough or be enough to please God. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has done everything required for you to know God and enjoy him forever. And if you believe that, if you know that of yourself, that you're broken before God, then the fourth point is right. That Jesus is a balm to the broken. Jesus is a balm to the broken. I don't have to tell you that the world is broken. There's wars. The war we prayed about this morning is racism, there's pain, there's social inequality. And it's noble and virtuous to try to fix these things. But the problem is not out there. The problem is here. The problem is my wicked heart. See, we're broken inside. And we are no more able to stop the destruction of sin and all the things that come of it then a spider web is able to catch a falling stone. You get that picture? You cannot stop these things by mere effort. And only to the broken, only to those who know they're broken, will Jesus be a balm. Because all those who are broken and receive Jesus readily admit that they are hopeless in their own efforts and that they are destroyed without Jesus and that they stand opposite to the seed that falls on the hard path. Therefore, they're willing to crucify their flesh because it gets them nothing. And they see that it only causes heartache. They see that Jesus is a balm because they see their sin in their broken life for what it is and the shame that it causes. Not that Jesus' teachings are a thing to be ashamed of, but that they are ashamed of who they are in their broken condition. Therefore, they embrace Jesus for all that he says without shame, and they live by it. See, Jesus is a a balm because it is him who is the center of all that they are looking for. Their brokenness is realized to be a futile pursuit of joy in the things outside of God. Therefore, they live for joy in the fullness of, and the knowledge of God, and not in the benefits that they think Jesus might bring to the outside. Jesus restores the broken just as he restores the ones who are hopeless in the gospel. They picture our brokenness. Diseased people who are outcasts and rejected ones of society, they're the broken who are coming to Jesus for total healing of their hurting. And when you come to Jesus this way, It's not that you need a plan to figure out how to evangelize your neighbors and those around you. But you have a new hope that makes you a preacher of this Christ who has restored you, who's given you true hope. Jesus says that those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and they accept it. And then they bear much fruit, 
thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. That's how the kingdom grows. That's the key to the rest of the parables here in this passage. The kingdom grows like a seed that is small, but it grows to overwhelming size in those who recognize their need for the true king. But here's the reality. Are you ready? There has never been a day when I have seen my brokenness fully enough to come to Christ. So it is Jesus who is broken for me. He experienced the fullness of brokenness in my place. So if you see a glimpse of your brokenness today, if you recognize that 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 speaks to your heart, that that's who you are and you see a part of that, run to Christ today. Repent of your self-sufficiency. Repent of your shame and the things that Jesus teaches. Your search for satisfaction in everything under the sun. And trust as best you can in what he has offered in Christ. The good soil is the one who senses something of his brokenness and pleads with Christ to heal him. The way that you respond to Jesus is of the utmost importance. How are you responding to Jesus today? You must see your need for brokenness before the gospel can truly take root. Is Jesus a destroyer of your world? Is he a problem to your social circle? See the golden goose that you're hoping will get you what you're after? Where are you broken before him? You're driving the ship. Will you submit to Jesus? Will you steer your life in accordance with his direction? Will you submit to his gospel? Or will you crash into the rocks? That's the choice. Trust in Jesus by faith in his work. Father, thank you for your gospel that comes through the work of Jesus. Thank you that you have given us a savior who redeems a broken people. Father, I pray that you'd cause us to trust and to hope in all that you have sent Jesus to accomplish. Father, by your Spirit, change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.